Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 67 of Saturday 13th of October 2018. I'm Jeremy Sear and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to our country, what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is returning guest host, Denise Pugo. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. This, this weekend, we're not trying to uh, flog off our old car, but we have been, well, we are going to have to talk about something else that apparently gets flogged off, which is, did you know that the Sydney Opera House, the sales, those iconic sales, are apparently an advertising billboard organised by and operated by Alan Jones? I did. I learned that this week, and I was very interested to hear that. Now, I'm going to drop in some audio here, which will be triggering for many people because it's A, a it's Alan Jones, and B, because he's being an outrageous bully. Yes. Um, now, he does later, and we'll drop in him, we'll play him apologising for this because he went a bit far and he didn't intend to bully. Uh, I don't think you'll be able to hear this audio without clearly perceiving that that's exactly what he's trying to do. He's specifically trying to bully someone with threats into doing a thing that he wants. Like, it could not be more bullying. Yes. Uh, I'd like to emphasise before I drop in the audio, which I will have to edit down. On Friday last week, Alan Jones's show started off with him promoting his mate from the who organises this horse race called the Everest, and he's he's effusive about this bloke. He's he's a great man. He's he's uh, he, he can't find the superlatives enough to describe him. Peter Volandis, who's emerged as an outstanding sporting administrator and is the boss of Racing New South Wales, has gone in with guns blazing. Volandis is a very talented administrator. Sell Sydney to the world, say Volandis and Stuart Ayres. Outstanding stuff, both of them. Peter Volandis is on the line, and um, he gets embarrassed when I say it, but in this world you don't give people credit. This is one of the great sporting administrators in this country, Peter Volandis, and he thinks outside the square. Peter, keep at it. You're doing a great job. Thanks, Alan. And he goes on about this for ages, and he's outraged that the Sydney Opera House is refusing to put up on the sales the numbers of the horses and the betting statistics. Or the, there's there's a bunch there's details of the of the what's it called the draw that he wants to have. He wants the up. horse name and he wants the um the booking the booking number or the number of the bay that they run out it's, of. It's more anyway. than just the colours because the Opera House had already said we'll do we, we can do the colours for you like like yeah. a vivid or something. And he spends a huge chunk of the early part of his program promoting this guy and being outraged that, that the, you know, the bureaucrats don't recognise that it's our opera house. And as Peter Volandi says, the elites should not have a right to fence off the site. Peter Volandi said the opera house belongs to the taxpayers of New South Wales, not to a minority of elites, but you can't promote the richest horse race in the world. Snobs prevail. Gladys, Gladys, put your foot down. Put these people in their place. Oh, By yes. our, he means Alan Jones and the racing industries. Eventually, just at the in the last six minutes of his program, after being bullied the whole time, Louise Heron, who is the person who's 
responsible for making those decisions for the Opera House. Being the manager of the Opera House. Does call in and then she is bullied. Now, I will play you that audio now. Keep in mind that this podcast, if you haven't realised, uh, if you click in your podcast app and you have a podcast app that recognises timestamps, we do have timestamps for each part of, you know, I, I put in for the different sections that we've covered. So if you don't want to listen to Alan Jones, there will be a timestamp that lets you skip right past it. Yes. But, and I understand you're doing that, but on the other hand, it's also useful hearing exactly what he does uh, so that we understand, A, how Sydney works, B, what a professional person... No, like- I, I object to, A, how Sydney works, being a former Sydney sider myself. Uh, he made demands, he bullies someone, and the Premier comes and does what he wants. I believe uh, what we're doing is in the right interest of, of Sydney and New South Wales. And also, uh, there is not there is a precedent for what's going to happen on Tuesday. And I say to people, uh, have a look at the display before you judge it. Okay, I retract my objection. It's certainly not how Sydney should work. No. And it was only the people coming back later and protesting vigorously that in any way counters this and makes it a less horrific story than it is. And, and look, I have listened to this audio now, and uh, I do have to say that it is bullying, it is horrible, but at the same point, it is interesting to actually hear how he sort of attacks people, cuts over them, how he derails a conversation, how he'll let his one, his his mate from racing speak, but then when... Uh, oh, so two of them against her. Yeah. I'm not going to play you all six minutes because I value... We're kind. We're kind to you and yeah. we don't want you to like... But if it's actually, if, if you're curious, it's worth finding to hear just... Because it's a masterclass in, in how a person who thinks that he runs things bullies... Yep. People who are calling, who are pushing back and going, no, you don't. There are rules and yep. you don't run this. We, we are governed by rules and this is how we have to do it. And the Opera House CEO, Louise Heron, is on the line. Louise, good morning. Good morning, Alan. Louise, people reading the Telegraph newspaper today on the front page will be saying, who the hell do you think you are? You don't own the Opera House. We own it. We yeah. own the Opera House. You don't have a right to fence it off. Okay. So the Opera House is a World Heritage List. Now, hang on. We know all that, Louise. We know that. We just, no, don't, well, don't give us... Hang on just a second. So we have a policy that protects our World Heritage status. Oh, so and they're going to damage it, are they? They're going to... Is the land policy- is, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We know all this stuff, Louise. We own the Opera House. Do you get that message? You don't. You manage it. And if you can't give the go-ahead for this to happen to an event that's providing $100 million to the economy, delivering a tourism boom to Sydney, to send Sydney around the world. If I were Gladys Berejiklian, I'd pick up the phone and sack you today. Can you just answer one question, Louise? Is the Peter Volandi's request going to be accepted or not? We have said yes to the Peter Volandi's request to put the colours of the horses, of the jockey's colours on the sails. We have no problem with that. I spoke to Peter. Means nothing. That I means said, nothing. That means nothing. What we won't do is put text or videos of horses running or horses' numbers or names or the Everest logo on the Opera House. Why? It's not a billboard. Why? Not a billboard. Who said? Who said? You. Who the hell do you? Hang on, Louise. 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 Who do you think you are? This is. This is. This is. This is a national. Do you want me to answer? Do you want to keep on? Browning no, no, well, I, hang on. Out there, I tell you what, out there, I'll tell you what they're saying. They're saying that you should go today. That's what they're saying. 
Ask the open line here and see the emails that are written to me. They say if this can't be approved, you should be sacked because you don't own the Opera House. To put colours alone means nothing. Peter Volandis, I've brought back on the line. Peter Volandis, will you please explain to Louise Heron that the colours on the Opera House would mean nothing? Absolutely nothing. And, and Louise has been quite misleading. That's not our proposal. Our proposal was to do the barrier draw. You can't do a barrier draw without putting the horse's name and the number. Um, and that's the whole idea of the promotion. Louise, I'm sorry, I think you're out of your depth here, completely out of your depth. You should put your resignation on the table today, and if that doesn't happen, it's a test for Gladys Berejiklian. You don't run New South Wales, Louise. The government does. We don't elect you, we elect the government. The Landis is making a perfectly reasonable request to sell Australia. You've got some time now to rethink this, Louise, and gain very significant support. There is none at the moment for what you're doing. None. I'll ask you again one simple question, yes or no. Will you be accepting the promotion that Peter Volandis is recommending? So what exactly? I don't even know what he's recommending. Okay, here we what go, Peter. Right, Peter. She does know, Louise. I think no, it's very misleading, what Louise. Okay, well, go what on, we're Peter. recommending is we put the horse's colours, the horse's name, and the barrier that it draws onto the op. It takes five minutes. Then there's an hour of light show in between that you requested that we've accommodated. But I you can't do it. You can't. You can't do. You can't do a barrier okay. draw without numbers and names. Okay, hang on. It's pretty simple. A barrier draw, numbers, names, and colours on the opera house. Yes or no, Louise? It breaches the Opera House. I do, hang on, yes or no? It breaches the Opera House. Okay, then policy. I'm telling you I will be speaking to Gladys Berejiklian in about five, three minutes, and if you can't come to the party, Louise, you should lose your job. You are not the owner of the Opera House. You are managing it for all of us. It's an asset for all of us. And Volandis is trying to promote Australia, the Opera House, to the rest of the world, and it's good for the economy. So, Louise, I've run out of time, but you may be running out of time as well. Thank you. Thank you. My favourite thing is how when Louise is trying to explain the position of the Opera House, he cuts her off and is just like, no, we don't want to hear that. We want a yes or no answer. But also how when she does say things in objection to what the racing guy says or that contradict him, she just talk, he just talks over her. He talks over her completely and says, no, no, no. He said that's what you, what you discussed and you're saying it's not, but I believe him. I, I was actually impressed by her calling back on the racing guy. Like she calls bullshit on the things he's claiming. Yes, he didn't. He just expected to be able to get that straight through to the keeper. Absolutely. But it's two blokes shouting down a woman. Yeah. Um. Uh, I'll. In fact, I'm actually going to play out of order because I'm going to play the Alan Jones apology that he came to later in the week. But we've still got to deal with that he, while he's still winning because because we've got Morrison backing him up in a minute and uh, Gladys backing him up. Uh, and it's not until the public come back and say no, this is bullshit that he eventually does an apology, but he does eventually do an apology. And I'll play it right now because it's right. So it's fresh in your mind how he was speaking to her. But when when I play it to you, I want you to hear well, a couple of things. Like, he's not an apology. If you're offended, it's a faux apology. But one of the things that got me was his bit of, I treat men and women the same. I'm as robust with men as I am with women, which is a line that people like Jones will do. And their idea is, if I'm just as abusive to women as I am to men in a context where men are expected to sort of roll with the punches sort of thing, then I'm being neutral and it's you who's sexist. No, in fact, he's 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 a champion for equality because he's treating her with the same disdain that he would treat a man without acknowledging his privilege, his position, his power, that it is an uneven playing ground to begin with, centuries of, of inequality between them. And the context that we live in of 
violence by men against women. Like, this is not a neutral thing. No. First of all, he shouldn't be speaking that way to men either because it's, even though, uh, even where there's not the male-female power imbalance that if the society we live in, Alan Jones is still, there's still a power imbalance with everyone that he's bullying. And he's bu- he shouldn't be bullying anyone. Yes. And it's not, the, the other ba- bases on which he bullies people are also illegitimate and, yes. and wrong. And he shouldn't be doing that. But yeah, the idea that it's exactly the same is not the same. Like two blokes shouting down a woman in a world in which we had, uh, was it six women who were murdered in Australia by their partners in last one week? week? Yeah. We, My partners are people they knew. This is not a an academic point. This is, it's, Fairly clear that, that the when a bloke is being bullied in the way that Alan Jones does with a woman, it has that whole other. There's there's a context. There's a there's a absolutely, and you should play the apology to hear just how. And I even have like it actually catches in my throat calling an apology. You should play what Alan Jones considers an apology, so we can hear it for ourselves. I am responsible for everything in the show. Sometimes I get it wrong. When I do, I have no problem in saying so. Now, last Friday and on Monday, I spoke about Louise Heron, the Opera House CEO, and I used some words in these programs about the Everest and the Opera House and about Louise Heron, which, and I've had conversations with her before, which in hindsight, I regret having heard the impact, and that's my concern, the impact that they've had on some people, including her. That is not my concern, and if it's been a deleterious impact, then I'm prepared to say, look, I'm sorry about that, Louise. In relation to her on Friday, I was tough. As I said yesterday, I say now, it was tough stuff on a tough issue. And I also said yesterday, men and women are treated equally on the program. And I held myself to that standard. I don't believe my words or actions qualify as those of a bully or a misogynist, but there are clearly many people who do. My intention was to deal with the issue, about which I feel very passionately, and not to bully or demean Louise Heron. So to Louise and to those people who've been offended, if we are offended, that was not my intention. I do apologise. I'm always happy to do that. And I do it often. And as I said earlier, I'll be writing to Louise later today and indicate those very same sentiments. So I don't find that a very convincing apology. There is no reason why, hearing that apology, you would think that he's not going to actually do it again. And it's only even being made after... Uh, several days of where he really thought he could bluster it out. Like, this wasn't just on Friday. He kept going, and it's only after they tried it. It has the classic thing, as you say, a faux apology of, if you were offended by it, and if you thought it was bullying, I didn't think I was bullying or misogynistic, but apparently people out there thought I was, and if you thought I was offensive, then I'm sorry to you. I'm sorry you found it offensive. Which, again, absolves him of having to, in any way, change his behaviour. Because he's like... I can't see it. I can't see what I did was wrong. So how's an apology? Why yeah. do we think you'll do anything differently next time? And he's getting press saying that he apologised. He's getting actual things in the Sydney Morning Herald, in the National Paper saying, in the National Press saying, oh, but he apologised to her. But I, he didn't apologise. Again, uh, we've talked about apologies before. Uh, if uh, our children do uh, do something wrong, the apology is not going to be just saying, I'm sorry. No. Like, that is a meaningless apology. The point of the apology is that the person knows that you understand what you've done and won't do it again, that there's an appreciation, that there's regret. Because simply, I, I don't give a... If you somebody hurts me... There's acknowledgement. It's interesting. As 
um, in, in part of the stakeholder engagement process and in the communications process, they teach like there's a seven steps to an apology and to acknowledging your action. But when the big thing is you acknowledge your actions, you accept your actions, you admit how your actions can cause harm. You uh, say what you're going to do to ameliorate or make good for those actions. You make a commitment to not do having those actions again. You reconfirm that, that you did harm. And then you ask the other person if that is like, basically that is enough. That's a truncated version I may have missed or skipped over a few steps, but that's basically how an actual apology runs. And when you work in a, a stakeholder engagement sort of thing, they say, if you cannot apologize, if your organization cannot apologize to someone in this manner, um, then it is not a good valued apology. Well, which makes sense because why is it that we're, when somebody, when somebody harms us, the word sorry doesn't, I mean, what does that mean? I don't care what uh, you use a word. If you harm me, what I want to know before I can move on. So my immediate reaction with that apology is to recognize that you have harmed me and are likely to harm me again. And therefore I have to take steps to avoid that harm in future. Like, yes. And, and I don't, you're not a trusted person. You're a dangerous person. I need to put things in place to protect myself. So and that is the, that is the, so the point of the apology is to say, we can go back to normal relations because these are the ways in which I'm going to reassure you that you are protected now. That yes, you don't, that, that I this understand is not going to what again. I did. That yeah. I understand what I did. I understand what I did to you. I understand the harm I caused, and this is how I'm going to change my actions. And and if you think an apology, if you expect an apology to be accepted, it's got to be one that's credible and that the, that the person will. Does anybody listening to either Alan, the way Alan Jones was speaking to Louise Heron, and his apology, does anyone think that there is? any kind of actual change there that he won't do that again i think thousands and thousands of people who listen to him every day think that that was a perfectly fine apology and possibly more than that woman deserved <laughs> but does anybody who was concerned about it think that louis no. uh, okay do i think that he will specifically bully louise heron again maybe not maybe that relationship now he will he will be a bit more careful do I think he'll bully another person in the same situation when he yep. wants something out of them? Hell yes. 300%. Yeah. Now, he got lots of support from the Prime Minister. Uh, this is the Prime Minister shortly after the Friday interview saying he didn't understand. What? Why wouldn't people use it as a billboard? Like, that's what it's for. Uh, we're talking about an event that is one of the big money spinners for the state. It creates jobs. It, this isn't about advertising a packet of chips. This is about advertising one of the biggest events that New South Wales holds. I, frankly, I thought it was a bit of a no-brainer. I, I can't work out what all the fuss is about. You have made the comment, you spoke about it yesterday, quote, I come from a tourism background. These events generate massive economic opportunities. I don't know why people are getting so precious about it. It's not like they're painting it on there. I mean, it's the lights flashing up there for a brief Ten moment of time. I just don't understand why we tie ourselves up in knots about these things. So that audio grab of Morrison uh, isn't actually the whole thing, and I don't have the remainder of what he was saying to the uh, reporters in regional New South Wales. But here are a bunch of things that the Prime Minister thinks about the Opera House. Yes. The Sydney Opera House. This is one of the biggest events of the year. Why not put it on the biggest billboard Sydney has? Scott Morrison thinks that the Opera House is a billboard, not, you know, the Opera House. He also thinks that a cruel two horses horse racing event is one of the biggest events in the year. Uh, and, well, it's not just the ho- he, he just basically wants it up for sale. Yeah. I'd put the Bathurst 1000 on the Harbour Bridge if I thought it was going to get more people there. Oh, my God. 
I'd put my mate's ute up there if I thought it would sell it. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. So he was talking up near Bathurst when he was saying that. He said he thought that promoting this horse race on the Opera House is just common sense. I don't know why people are getting so precious about it, he said. And then, the extremely revealing and accurate, frankly, I thought it was a bit of a no-brainer. I find that anyone who uses the word precious and doesn't mean gems or gold is really problematic, is a huge issue. Oh, it's a snowflake thing. It's like people using terms like social justice warrior or snowflake. It's it's basically about if I'm offended, it's a rational, sensible response to an outrageous provocation. But if you're offended by something I've done, you're precious and your objection is just, it it shouldn't be taken seriously because you're being oversensitive. um, Oh, absolutely. That makes total sense. The Premier of New South Wales was also, because she actually went ahead and gave the order to the Opera House to promote this horse race, notwithstanding that it's likely against the uh, rules that the Opera House operates under. Mm-hmm. And she made that order, and New South Wales responded. We'll get to that in a second. But this is, these are her lines. Uh, no one is more passionate about the Opera House than I am. My dad was actually a welder on the Opera House, so my family history uh, goes back to the first days when the Opera House was being built. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, if your dad was a welder there, then obviously you have carte blanche for making any decisions for it. She, she denied she, she'd caved in. She said... The government had been in negotiations for a long time over this matter. Uh, the version that is going to be played or, or displayed on Tuesday is much toned down to what the government was first presented with. So what the hell was the government presented with originally? Yeah. Well, apparently, so in the longer Alan Jones version, he mentions how we'd agreed that we would put a horse's name and numbers and colors up, and then we'd do like a, a, a period of time. We caved to you and said that we would do just colors for an hour in between each horse's name. It's just, it's just insane. And like, like, like that was reasonable. Like they were saying, okay, we'll give you this because, but he seemed really incensed about this. I think what they just <laughs> They're entitled. Oh. Like Alan, the whole bit of early on where he's talking about how, who the hell do these bureaucrats think they are? These elites with their opera house. Why are they so snobby? Why are they so, all these, these elites, why are they so snobby that they won't promote the richest horse race in Australia? Oh, the more you have gone. <laughs> like, like, these whole pitches, this is our most, it's more, more expensive than the prize money is even higher than the Melbourne Cup because nothing says being common folk and not, not elitist like having an extremely rich horse race. Yes. In fact, owning a horse, I imagine that the people in New South Wales were just like, yeah, no, this is totally fine. This is great. Just just, just let them advertise. And there was no reaction from the community at all. Alan Jones was saying to Louise, there's not an ounce of support for your position. Well, it turns out there was actually quite a lot of support for the opposition to doing this, uh, as was demonstrated when on Tuesday night, when they were going to do this promotion, more than a thousand protesters showed up. They had smartphones and torches, and they were shining light on the Opera House to try and prevent the broadcasting of this giant horse racing ad on the sales. And even better, some uh, some lighting and technical people had set up some big floodlights on the other side of Circular Key to shine at the sales to help disturb it as well. Uh, Gladys was very upset. I, she says, I, she told the ABC, I'm upset at the way the issue panned out publicly, but I'm equally upset at those who've come out now and been almost as vitriolic in expressing their views. Yeah, to hell with you ordinary people going out there and saying no. It's, it's just the same as, as uh, Alan Jones bullying the look, person who manages the Opera House. Absolutely. And look, you're allowed to protest, but you're only allowed to protest in ways that I approve of. And those ways involve you politely coming up and saying something to me about you disagreeing and then going away. Yes, it's insane. 
The other thing that's been insane this week has been the Ruddock review, but the government's worked very hard up until now to try and keep it suppressed. They've had the report for over five months. Uh, and in fact, when the Senate told them, in fact, made an order for them to produce that uh, final report, Matthias Cormann wrote to Senator Ryan, the president of the Senate, saying that they weren't going to release the review because, quote, the government claims a public interest immunity over the documents referred to in the motion on the grounds that these documents informed and are the subject of cabinet deliberation. Cabinet confidentiality has been long accepted as grounds for a public interest immunity claim on the basis that the deliberations of the cabinet must remain confidential. Matthias Cormann. Ah, yes, the joy of cabinet and confidence. So that's a little bit incompatible with what Morrison was claiming this week. Uh, We have a report that's been provided to the government. It's a report to government, not from government. Uh, It's a report that the government will be considering and developing a balanced response to, and we'll do that uh, in our orderly process, taking it through Cabinet. This has not been through Cabinet at this point. Uh, It hasn't been considered by Cabinet, so we will take it through that orderly process and, uh, and we will come out with our response to the Ruddock Review. So, Morrison, are you lying as Corman, or as the little girl in the taco ad would say, why not both? I think it possibly is. Oh, my goodness. That feels like, like that one where um, where Chris Pine was asked the question about if he was afraid to go out for dinner in Melbourne, and then was like, oh, crap, crap, ask me that again, ask me that again. I forgot what the party line was that was. It's so difficult to keep all of our lives together. Oh, my goodness. So it's, it's had an interesting path because I don't think the Conservatives were expecting it to leak the way that it did and it became apparent that their pitch because morrison at that point was like no it's just this this existing law we're just planning on protecting that well it's the existing law and we're not proposing to 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 change that law to to take away that existing arrangement that exists i want to make it really clear that what was reported today is existing law existing law which basically means locking in states that might consider improving it like everything else Morrison has said about this, he's like, no, 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 there, there's nothing in particular that, that's, that's a problem, uh, but we need to change the law anyway. So I, lo- I love his line, yeah. No, it's just the existing law. Well, if it's yep. the existing law, why, what are you changing then? Why- and, and what's the furor about this? Is These laws already exist. And I think that's another interesting point because I think a lot of people didn't realise that these laws did already exist. Yes, and I think this is this is where it's backfired for them. So they, they've the, the coalition have had to pay, because you had conservative people like Hinch, even Andrew Bolt, even the ACL, have come oh, yeah. out and said, no, we don't want to uh, them to be able to expel gay students. Although Lyle Shelton came out and said, well, you know, we do want them to be able to uh, expel kids if they act on their gay impulses. Yeah, and it was interesting because um, I... How's he going to police that? Like, oh, what's... God. Um, I actually read Andrew Bolt's column in which he objected to this. And he's like, you can't discriminate against someone uh, based on how they were born. However... You know, it's totally fine if a gay couple gets married for them to uh, put that in because then they're choosing what they do about it. Oh, I mean, he opposed marriage equality. And yeah, well, he, and he continues to. But, you know, he did. He did. He can't discriminate against people who are how they're born. But again, like the ACL's line, it's what they do about it that then later allows you to discriminate against them. So basically, we're going, we want to force children into the closet, even though there's you know, all of the medical evidence would indicate that that is incredibly damaging to them. Yes. The other thing, of course, the ACL's out there saying, see, look, uh, we told you, you said that there wouldn't be any consequences to marriage equality. Uh, Sorry, to same-sex marriage. But look, here is the thing, because, of course, the ACL's logic on this subject appears to be, if a thing happens, it it must then be responsible for everything that happens after it, which is what it um, 
post hoc ego propter hoc or whatever is the Latin for that fallacy. But well, yeah, I was basically... born, so everything that has happened since I was born is my fault. Yeah, well, uh, you were born, therefore... Hey, therefore Star Wars is my fault, because Star Wars came out after I was born. Yeah, and Lyle Sheldon was born, therefore 9-11 happened. Damn it. Yeah. No, I mean, has Lyle apologised totally for 9-11? Sense. Yeah, because obviously if something happens after something, it must have been caused by it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Lyle Shelton uh, joining the ACL uh, caused this podcast. So thank you, Lyle. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for creating this podcast. So the government realised pretty quickly that whilst uh, bashing gay adults might have seemed like a good idea last year, uh, it failed. And if it failed with gay adults, then bashing gay kids... Is oh, going to be a much tougher sell. They already have the clear figures of how that failed last year when the ACL went on, went all out and tried everything they could. This is not a political win for them. So they have backed the hell down. Yeah, they have backed the hell down. Uh, and that's good because they, they should. But now, luckily, uh, so Labour's gone out there and said that they will support a bipartisan bill to um, say that you can't discriminate against gay students. But um, not teachers. Yeah, well, uh, the Greens are pushing. The Greens are pushing to take it one step further. And to say that we can't discriminate against that, to stop, to stop the policy that allows people to fire teachers, etc. Well, or even more, even less relevantly, any staff. Yeah, like we've said, teachers and staff. So well, basically, is this going to be a situation where they have, by virtue of raising this issue, which was always going to be hard for the people who want this discrimination to stop, to get out there because it's it's hard getting people who aren't affected to pay attention. But the Conservatives have gone out there and they've made this, this issue live and now more people are aware that, hang on, right now schools can in fact sack the gardener for being gay. Yep. Uh, people may have assumed that that wasn't the case. Well, and, now, and so maybe now, the Greens are certainly pushing for it, maybe this might backfire on the Conservatives and we might actually get an improvement in that because well, it should bloody happen. It's actually interesting because um, so Morrison's gone, come out and said that they'll put in a bill to ensure that schools can't, um, non-state schools can't discriminate against children for being gay. Um However, he hasn't said whether or not that bill will direct the states because currently that legislation's at state level. So in Victoria, it's okay. In New South Wales, it's like, so all these states, it's okay to, for that to happen. Um, well, if the, if the Sex Discrimination Act specifically says that you can't discriminate against somebody on the grounds of sexual orientation, I think there's a very good chance that the High Court would determine that that, is, that overrides the state legislation. So if, if a, an organisation wanted to discriminate using a state act that says that they can, but there's a federal act that says that they can't, the federal act would override it. One would hope, but one would also hope that they would just pass something that had the overriding uh, aspects written into it to override the state law, rather than needing it to go to the high court and be fought. If there's any conflict between federal and state laws, uh, and somebody challenges it, the high court would have to make a decision as to whether the, one of the federal powers that will override the states. I think they would. So I don't think it really it doesn't really matter whether he says that it is written in to do that. It's got it's just specifically got to if the federal act gives a protection, or more particularly particularly if it makes a prohibition against that discrimination, then somebody who's being discriminated against would then be able to rely on that act. Okay. That's Unless, good to know. Um as, assuming it's a federal power, and I think it, I think they would find that it is. Interesting. But it sounds like they're only talking about students. It yes. should be it should be uh, including everyone. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully it backfires. And it shouldn't just be schools. It should be like they're really focused on schools right now. It should be yeah. They want to, they want to narrow it down. Yeah, yeah. He wants to make it as narrow as possible. So now he's now he's selling it as protect our kids. Interestingly, the Reddit review, which was could not have been better set up to help the conservatives uh, and the the religious fundamentalists, because that's what it, it was there to placate them. It was their pick. They got to choose how it was going to be run. 
And yet the Reddit review that that recommends that right for schools, which is an existing power that they have, that they shouldn't have, but it recommends that being protected. Well, in fact, it doesn't. The Rudder Review doesn't actually recommend the, that the government change the current state situation. It says that it should leave them the same. It says that where those organisations are relying on those protections, they should be forced to be transparent about it. Yep, which, which is, they aren't now. No, which is a massive blow to them. Like, in fact, in some ways, what the Ruddock Review was recommending would be a step forward because any organisation that wants to do it, there are a lot of private schools that like the, uh, the ability to do it quietly mm, but don't really want to broadcast it to, you know, the broader their community. broader community because yeah. they would because it will actually backfire on them yeah. they're they get away with it at the moment because people don't ask questions they, it doesn't affect them so they don't really know about it but if they had to announce by the way we are a, a school that does not believe in homosexuality and will keep anybody who is an lgbti person away from uh, the school and they put that up there as part of their their yeah. public branding and so forth and they have to do that if they want to have those protections I think they would find that that was very hard for the that that, that it would not be worth it to them. Yeah, I think they would go. You know what? Itself. We're not going to take that right. We you, we see that the right is there, but it's probably more costly to us to exercise. So yeah. no. Fair enough. So it's interesting because in some ways it actually narrowed some of the powers. The, yes. the recommended. Not that we have the whole review yet. No. Which is extraordinary. Like the idea that there's been this review, this public review, and we still don't have it. It's just insane. That actually leads us neatly, because Chris and I were talking about this last week, actually, the, the idea that they're waiting out past the Wentworth by-election. But uh, Chris actually makes the point that the people who are promoting the uh, anti-equality stuff here are also promoting it elsewhere, uh, in particular in Taiwan. So anyway, here is Kristen O'Connell letting us know what is stuck in her craw. Hi, everyone. This week, what's stuck in my craw is fucking American conservative money. Honestly, it is at the root of so many of the problems we're facing right now as progressives. We see it in the dis- discussion about climate change in this country, where since John Howard left office in 2007, we've seen the decline of the Liberal and National Coalition's position from one of accepting the science and re- you know reluctantly taking action or at least agreeing to take action to just utter denialism, to promotion of coal, to the suggestion that gas is an appropriate substitute that will actually help us to achieve the extremely ambitious goal we now have of sticking to 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. We have, I learned this week, in Taiwan, where the marriage equality campaign is currently fighting to retain legal marriage for people who are in same-sex relationships because the Supreme Court granted that right last year to homosexual couples and American conservatives have come over, have campaigned, have um, got the signatures together to call a referendum in Taiwan to overturn the Supreme Court's decisions. We've got American conservatives infiltrating Australian gun law, working with people like David Leonhelm and the Shooters and Fishers to start undermining the laws that were put in place by Howard. That's twice I've mentioned Howard in a vaguely positive context in this two minutes. There is so much that's wrong that we are fighting against right now that is being supported being even created by money coming from people like the Koch brothers um, and huge um, conservative and Christian fundraising groups in the United States. So right now I want to see stronger laws preventing that sort of money being able to play a part in our politics. I don't know how we do that without harming organisations that rely on foreign funds like um, World Wildlife Foundation, Greenpeace, Sea Shepherd. Um, But I think it's really crucial that we pay more attention to how these insidious influences are shaping not just... Um, the positions being taken by our politicians, but the the discussion that's happening in our media landscape. So that's what's stuck in my craw this week. 
So the link to support the campaign in Taiwan is in the show notes. Uh, because of the uh, Taiwanese currency at the moment and the Australian currency, actually, uh, your money goes a long way in Taiwan right now. Yeah. So if you want to support that campaign, that money would be very appreciated. But then the second thing she was pointing out was the effect of all this American money on our reaction to action on climate change. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a big thing. You know, here in Australia, we're really good about climate change. Like the Australian government saw the most recent report and, oh, wait, they threw it out. Well, they promised not to do anything with it. Here is Morrison responding to it and making the powerful point that essentially what happens what happens on planet Earth stays on planet Earth. It doesn't affect us here in Australia, wherever Australia is located, presumably on a different planet. It's on our backup planet. Here's Morrison responding to the IPCC report this week that itself, not, not only was it saying essentially, look, idiots, we need to wake up to this because we are, we've got 10 years uh, or we are absolutely screwed. And by, by 10 years, that is to keep us to 1.5 degree warming. That, that is like the best case scenario now. Mm. Um, and also that report, it underestimates the effect. It's the best case scenario because it's ignoring the impact of the tipping point. So things like we melt the permafrost, it releases more methane and sets it all off much worse. So the IPCC report was itself a best case scenario. In, and even that, even that one's angle, we really need to get on this. This is what Morrison's response was. Just like we've met uh, Kyoto 1 and we'll meet Kyoto 2, we have our policies and, and plans in place to achieve that, um, whether it's the small or the large-scale red or the, the, uh, the various other measures we have in place. Uh, we'll look at this report. It was only a year ago the same report said that the mix of policies Australia had was right on the money. So um, this report, I should, should be very clear, deals with the global situation. This report does not provide recommendations to Australia or Australia's program. This is dealing with the, the global program. Look, like you say, what happens in Vegas stays in... No, wait, that was Australia. What happens in Australia stays in Australia. We're fine. Our emissions are fine. They're, we're, they've we're... Re restated their commitment to coal. Yeah, we're you know. Burn, we need to burn more. We need to sell more so well, that other people can burn it. I think it's just like our environment minister said the other day. We don't know. Like, to block ourselves out of coal now, when we don't know in 20 years, there could be technological advances that makes coal the cleanest thing to burn. If that magically happened, first of all, there's no way burning coal without reaching, releasing carbon um, compounds. Like, that's what the reaction is. But second, like, that's why, that's why coal works. Do you not works. believe in technology? Do you not believe in Australia and our technological advancement? Okay, say there was a magical way to... Extract the energy from coal without releasing carbon compounds, even though that's precisely how coal works. Um, say that happened in 20 years. Well, the coal would still be there. We could dig it up then. Like, th that, that seems like a staggeringly long shot, and there are better, better bets for us to invest in. Also, what if, what if um, the IPCC and all of the climate scientists are right, uh, which pretty much anyone who's observed the climate can, observe, can see... And what if our environment minister used to work for the coal industry? Yes. Now, Morrison's also making made a claim in that in, interview that we were going to, we, we're fine, we're going to hit our emission circuits anyway. Absolutely. I, I believe him because he would never say anything that was untrue. Like, he told us they haven't discussed it in cabinet, so obviously that they haven't. Yeah. No, that's, that's a lie. Uh, so Australia is on track uh, to miss the Paris climate targets because our emissions oh. have hit record highs. In fact, if you look at the um, emissions, you know how Tony Abbott used to campaign that you know the carbon the carbon tax uh, was hitting us badly. It was very expensive for all of us, uh, and also uh, it wasn't it didn't work. It wasn't doing anything. Well, if you look at a graph of our emissions, like they they dip over the whole period of the carbon, they go down. In fact, yep. 
uh, and then they have skyrocketed ever since. So uh, I, I understand what happened with Scott Morrison, though. He uh, misunderstood the word miss in his notes and said meet instead. And it's really easy. They're, they're two very similar words. They both begin with M and they're both four letters. Yeah. Well, we're not going to hit it even close. Um, yeah. The In fact, I would say that we are going to rocket past it. So the figures for the year up to the end of June 2018. Now, these are not the government figures. The government has not updated their figures since, like, December 2017. Interesting. They've refused to publish any emissions data for 2018. So the December 2017 data, which they published in May, showed that our emissions have continued to soar. Uh, The report from NDEVR indicates that Australia will miss its Paris targets by about a billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. Now, I don't know why anybody would be sceptical about Scott Morrison, because clearly he wouldn't lie about those things. But, yeah, it doesn't look like we have a prospect of uh, hitting those targets. So pretty much everything he said was A, dumb, or B, a lie. And C, J.R. Hennessy had an excellent piece in theoutline.com this week, making the point of, well, as the headline states, who the hell cares what old people think about climate change? The basic premise being, when people are participating in an argument but have zero stake in the outcome because they're going to be dead by the time it happens. Uh, do you know who's not going to be dead? Us. Yes. Our children. Why on earth? Basically, we have a bunch of, of rich old people who are going to not be affected by the worst of climate change but who won't sacrifice any of their massive privilege and benefits right now to try and deal with it. And they're basically saying, fuck you all, uh, your problem. Like, there's no cost to uh. them. What's the cost to this generation of politicians of doing nothing? I mean, we might say rude things about them after they're gone, but, you know, they're going to be gone. Like, they might as well. They have kids and grandkids and they, oh, God, no, but you're right. And they have an interest in these businesses and that is more important to them. So basically, you know what? We should should pretty much respond to anyone who's doing this now and be like, uh, are you over 60? Then you have no stake in this argument. Go away. I mean, well, no, to be fair, they have a stake in that there's some action, but they don't have a stake in, either, in both sides of it. They are, their, their view is going to be very much simply the self-interested of, you know, how does it affect me? And we should all be very sceptical about anything they say because they don't care about the consequences if they're wrong. Similar to um, the housing market. Yes, exactly. You know, they own the houses. They want the value in their houses now. It is their retirement money. It is what's funding them. Um, And so they're looking at it going, we don't care that it's broken for the next generation. Oh, I have a house. Yes. All right. Well, let's go back to Gladys and her. Let's let's have a little section, which is we'll call it cheeky scamp watch, where where we where we watch the conservative schemes of the week because you've got to keep your eyes on those naughty little jabbies and the rascally things they get up to. Oh so, my goodness, with their little fingers in their picking of pockets. Oh my goodness. Oh, they're so cute. So yeah, Morrison's trying to sneak his three point two billion dollars of the corporate tax cuts. So this is a smaller wedge of them, but it's still corporate tax cuts for for um, Liberal Party, the Liberal Party base, basically, which. On the premise that it will flow through. Well, and was what was his comment as well? Again, they've they've raised that thing that something like seventy percent of Australians work for businesses that make under fifty million, which is what they're considering like a small business. Yeah, which is not that small. That's not very small. Fifty million is a lot of money. And of course, the picture that they always run in the Herald Sun is not a guy who's running a fifty million dollar business. It's a tradie who's running like an air uh, an air conditioning shop or a plumbing shop. I think Morrison and hires like four people. Morrison like had a video where he's like going and talking to some person who's selling like a like a, a coffee business or something, yeah. selling some kind of a food product, like to make it an ordinary startup. Look, I have six going. staff. Yeah, that, this is not a fifty million dollar business. But this is the thing. 
The only thing that makes businesses expand, if you give money to them in tax cuts, that doesn't, they don't invest that. They just keep that cash. It doesn't, the only thing that makes a business expand in terms of putting on more staff. is people spending money at their business. Yeah. And the best way of getting that happening is to give, make sure that ordinary people have that money. Not the businesses. The businesses just pocket it and take yes. that money out of the economy. You need, here's a better way of spending that $3.2 billion. Raise new stuff to a non-starving wage. Do you know where that money goes? Back into the economy. Because people suddenly can afford to buy groceries that are not just the subsistence groceries they have. They could actually maybe afford to have a one or two coffees out a week, which, you know, they'd be like, oh, well, they... Like, people need to have these little pleasures. They might be able to go to a movie or do something to actually enjoy themselves. Well, and the that new is study money. is so far below that. I don't, at this point, $40 a day for oh, new start. I don't, yeah, new start, me, all, all new start would do is that they, if we increase that, it would just stop, we'd stop you know, starving people to death. Well, exactly. But, but every cent of that money would go back into the economy. Like, every, yeah. unlike the, the tax cuts, which is the fiction of trickle down, money going back to people does trickle up. Yeah, because absolutely. it has, and, and that's not bullshit because. Rich people can take their money overseas. They can they can invest in stuff that doesn't help the economy generally. They can just sit on piles of money because they and they do. That money gets locked away. Money that ordinary people have, particularly the poor, one hundred percent of it goes back into the economy because they Absolutely. spend it all. It has to be spent. They and don't... it all a lot of it gets uh, and that's why the GST is such an unequal tax as well because because when one hundred percent of your income is being spent, then you're being effectively being taxed at a higher rate because you are the person buying all these things. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, that's, so why, that's why consumption taxes are Yeah, aggressive. 100% of your income is being spent on consumables and your life. Um, so you're paying a very high rate of GST, where someone who makes a whole lot of money is spending a much lower rate of their income. Again, percentage. And again, um, Chris and I last week were talking about the reverse ratchet. So once again, we have an example here. And I haven't heard anything from Labour or possibly, possibly the Greens, but, then, but they don't necessarily get media coverage when they do announce things, so I'm not 100% certain that they haven't announced anything. But when the government comes out and says, we want to do $3.2 billion of tax cuts, that's the point when all the progressive parties should be like, nah, instead, here's what we can spend the $3.2 billion on that actually is helpful to people. Absolutely. Like, that, is, that needs to be the immediate response, because as, at that point, that's how we can get the actual things that need to happen, because there are a lot of things that need funding from the government now, urgently, these are the times that you can get those promoted properly and people can see the benefit of those things without worrying about the cost because the government, the Conservatives have just told us they've got $3.2 billion to spend. There you are. This is a better thing you can do it with. And it also is a better opportunity for opposing that giveaway to the rich because people don't get fired up by not giving the money to the rich. Like It's, it's an abstract concept, but if it's instead of this, we could have these good things then that's the thing that is, is uh, more of a win. What I find is the Herald Sun on the front page uh, with their headline, Taking Care of Business. Oh, and God, yeah. This... Scott Morrison with this thumbs up. It says, the winners, 3.3 million firms win tax cut. And then it can't even, it has to qualify the next statement. 6.6 million workers potentially better off. <laughs> they're not even prepared to just like claim better off. Because they're not even able to say better off. They're like, look, the firms will get tax breaks. Maybe, Maybe that will help workers. Well, I mean, Morrison says that. He like, tries to claim that it'll lead to wage rises. But we just, you've given, you give tax cuts all the time every, and they don't lead to wage rises. Every single study, every single report, everything shows that it does not. And with the, the larger the business gets, the more they keep the profit. Oh, it does give wage rises to the, the executive. Oh, like that's the right. The that's CEO. right. Bonuses go to the CEO and yeah, the executive. Yeah, they get wage rises, but the actual workers don't. Um, and talking of uh, consumption taxes, because obviously we had the uh, tampon taxes coming back, coming off next year at some point. January 1st. Yeah. Um, 
Meanwhile, in Western Australia, an Aboriginal woman was fined this week $500 for stealing a $6 box of tampons. And the way that they talk about it in the news, they make it sound like it's this um, this big thing forward, this big step forward that they can just immediately hand out these fines. They can just give give these infringement notices to people. Yeah, so they're quite proud about it. They say, uh, so Constable Evans from Coolgardie Police says, normally prior to March, we would have had to arrest her under suspicion, bring her back, do a recorded interview. It would have taken pretty much all day. Uh, but now police are able to issue the infringement notice. And in this case, police were able to issue the infringement notice because the woman had a clean record. Uh, and the- 456 of these infringement notices have been issued so far, and only two have been dealt with in court. Uh, now, they have, so they're mainly for, they're for stolen goods. The police have not recorded statistics for the average value of the stolen goods. This particular case was a 20-year-old Aboriginal woman fined $500 on an infringement notice, allegedly stole tampons from a service station in Coolgardie, which were worth $6.75 from Coltec. In fact, Coolgardie police even tweeted it. Female issued $500 infringement for allegedly stealing an item valued at $6.75 from Coltec. That's what the police said. And the thing to note about this is as much as they aren't um, recording the amount for these that's being stolen, this is a specific fine for items under $500. Uh, yeah, and it's a five hundred dollar fine. What they said was, this is the this is Constable Brian evidence. He says the theft was caught on a security camera, and because police recognised the woman, quote, it was pretty clear to us. Her excuse was she was stealing it for someone else who was too ashamed to buy it, which is probably true. So, in that situation, yeah, he accepts it's probably true. Like he's this is a a, a compassion theft of a small value item, and the police still. You find her $500 for it. So, yeah, it's great that we're going to take the uh, GST off feminine products, but they need to be free. They need to be available to people. These are things that um, there's a big campaign. Uh, oh, God. Well, I'll find the link for the organization that collects feminine products, uh, tampons, pads, and things like that, and we'll share it on in the notes. Apparently, that's it's a really big theft item, and it's a really big issue amongst homeless people. Is not just feminine products, but... Like toiletries in general, because it's just something they don't. Feminine products, we should call them menstruation products. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. Actually, I don't like the word feminine products. And feminine products, it's it's like that that blue liquid they pour on them because they can't show that it's red or blood or anything like that. It's it's that it. it Wait, it's not blue. No. Oh my goodness. I know. I know. (laughs) Radical, but um, it takes away from what it is and it, it hides what it is. Tampons. Let's just call it. Well, it's, Menstruation it's, it's products. Adding um, yeah, exactly. So, but the idea is that these need to be free and accessible. We'll share the link of the charity that that collects these things. But they're a really high theft item because people can't afford them, but they're a necessity. Yes. Well, they should certainly be available. We should. New Start and various payments should be enough that people can actually get them. If there is a problem where the police are recognising that there's some kind of shame issue with people obtaining them, then there obviously is some work that needs to be done there, and it's not fining people five hundred dollars for doing it. But the the bit that gets me is uh, how is the this is a country I've said before where part of our national myth is that uh, even though we we're, we're ba- the white people arrived here and then a lot of them were convicts. Um, but that's okay. They weren't serious criminals. They just stole a loaf of bread, that sort of thing. Like our nation is built on this idea that, yeah, okay, sometime you know, petty theft to survive is a petty theft and it's yeah. not that serious. Well, apparently that's a mystery to the police ministry in Western Australia who said that the infringement notices provide swift justice, save court time and allow police to continue frontline duties. She said, stealing of any kind is a serious offence which the community has no tolerance for and this government doesn't apologise for handing out swift punishment of actual consequence. No, no, Lisa Harvey. 
Stealing of any kind is not a serious offence. Some kinds of thefts, like thefts to survive, petty thefts like stealing tampons for somebody who is unable to get them, that's yeah. actually not a serious offence, and the community does have tolerance for and it. And what that is is actually a Can you imagine what a magistrate would have done? She would have said, proven and dismissed. Yes. Uh, well, possibly not. Well, sorry. Um, oh, no. Sorry, I'm in, forgetting. In West Australia. Of... Yeah, no. Here, if a white person was came before a magistrate's court in Victoria, um, having stolen a box of tampons, there is every chance that a magistrate would have gone, proven and dismissed, or, or even just gone diversion or... Like, what? probably. You know, I reckon there's a good, decent chance that some of the magistrates would have said to the police... What an absurd thing this was to be bringing. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting, though, because this doesn't show stealing is a serious offence. This doesn't show that we have an issue with crime. This shows we have an issue with our society. This shows that we have an issue with how we fund poor people in our society. How is this woman going to pay $500? Well, uh, she has 56 days to pay it. And if she doesn't, it's okay, because she can uh, she can have it deducted from her Centrelink payments or her uh, oh, installments. Oh, good. So and the $40 a day becomes even less. Yeah. Cool. Well, she won't need to steal to survive anymore. Yeah, exactly. And oh, sorry. They might. Yeah, if she had a driver's license, they can suspend it because she lives in remote Western Australia where there's no public transport. Say she did have a job and won't uh, need a car to get there. Guess what? They'll stop her. But that's okay because if she's on Centrelink and then loses her license and can't get to her her work for the dole that they're putting in, then they'll fine her for that too. Ah, yes, the CDP. So, notwithstanding the fact that every submission to the Senate inquiry. Uh, on the government's controversial remote work for the doll scheme were opposed to it. CDP being the Community Development Program, which is a very neutral name for a system which is basically penalising people quite harshly if they fail to meet some of the arbitrary requirements imposed on them by Centrelink. So remote area participants must engage in 25 hours of work for the doll five days a week. Uh, about 83% of the people in the area where the CDP is being imposed are Indigenous. It imposes unfair work hours and flexibility on remote Indigenous participants who must also contend with language barriers, lack of internet and phone reception, and disproportionate levels of ill health. Penalties are non-waivable, so any income lost to a breach is not reinstated. Like, what are you meant to eat? Seriously, a safety net should not be possible to cut people off so that they can't eat. This is insane. Like it's you're right. You should not be able to cut people off that they that they can't eat, that they can't pay their rent, that they can't pay their bills. That's the idea of a safety net. You're right. It's a net, but it's also this is often make work. Like this is often work that in no way improves people's lives. It doesn't improve their skills or anything like that. Yeah. It's just we are punishing you for being poor. Yeah, entire, are, and that's the selling point to the people who support this shit. The liberal yeah. voters who like this. All it is is we hate the poor. We've in fact. Okay, we've been trained, the way that we feel good about how we are in, our, in the world is to feel that we've earned it, which means that the people who have less than us don't deserve it. They mean they're, they're bad people. They must be bad people. We, our good fortune must be due to our merit. They're bad, therefore, their bad fortune must be due to them being bad people. Therefore, they're stealing from us. Everything I give them, I resent because they're bad people. Therefore, yes. I want to kick them. I want to kick them hard. Like yeah. So much of conservative policy about the poor isn't just... We don't want to share with you. It's specifically we want to pander to the assholes that we sell the the line that you are bad people who need a kick, who are well, stealing from us and need a kick. They also sell the line that you know you're working hard, you're slaving away at your job, and they're sitting there in the lap of luxury, just taking yeah. the government money on their forty dollars a day. Yes. You know, just they're 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 just like flicking that money. If they're away. not starving to death, then they should be working as well. Yeah. Right? 
And like, and we're, we're not talking about uh, actual retraining programs. We're not talking about um, any sort of job seeking help, which again, those programs are can be pretty shit too, because I have friends who've gone through them and they've said, you know, they're all about quotas and you'll oh. have things like you're a single mother with a child with a learning disability. So you have to be available certain at certain hours. But then they're like, okay, well, here's a full-time call center job that you can go to. And then if you don't go to it, you we'll know, cut you off. yeah, we'll cut you off. And it's like, but that doesn't meet the fact that my child is in school half time because of a learning and when, disability and, and I'm the carer. And, yeah. and, and your recourse is to appeal through the system, which takes time. And in the meantime, you're starving to death. Yeah, absolutely. Because they cut you off. It's, it's, it's terrifying. And and a lot of those programs are run by for-profit organizations anyway. Like they're not actually run Who by the government. Who can now cut you off? Yeah. Like a private yeah. company, as of from July, can now starve you. Like they, <sighs> the, a private person, not just Centrelink, a government department, yeah. pri- a, a Private company can now stop yeah, people. And, and they're just all about their statistics. And they're all about, no, we, we said we put this many people in jobs. Um, even though those jobs are totally unsuitable. and They won't last there. And, yeah. Exactly. No, it's, <sighs> it, is, it is really horrible. Um, and the fact is that this does hit the poor more. This does hit Aboriginal and Indigenous population far well, more than it hits there's the a non. Reason, there's a reason they always start these things in remote communities where we can't hear about them. Yeah. Well, and it's like the um, the work for the, not the work for the welfare card um, is being, even though... Uh, oh, the, the one where you can only spend it at certain supermarkets, yeah. so, which makes it more expensive. Exactly. And, and then where, where and, there's all these examples of the places that, that those cards were accepted in rorting people. Yeah. And that they also discovered that uh, this, the studies don't actually conclusively show any benefit. In fact, they show in some places things getting worse. Um, but they're rolling it out in some more Queensland communities. Yeah. Because, again, it is not a bug of the system that it makes life harder for the poor. That is, the, for a lot of the people who support it, that is the point. And one last thing while we're talking while we're in Australia being monstrous to, monstrously cruel, our client state, Nauru, uh, has kicked uh, Medicine Sans Frontier off the island, and they're calling now. So Medicine Sans Frontier aren't random cranks. They are a well-respected organisation that provides um, a humanitarian aid. A well-respected international organisation. Yeah. And there's a reason why their other name, Doctors Without Borders, is like the the English version of the name. That's what they are. They are medical professionals of all sorts, from nurses to doctors to occupational medical people who go around the world and help people in uh, disadvantaged situations and high risk situations. And they are very diplomatic. They do not launch into like they obviously work in places where governments are oppressive. They, they are, don't take sides. They try very hard to stay out of it. Uh, they then just do the humanitarian work. They are diplomatic, which means that when I'm going to read you what they put in, what they said in their statement, or part of it, an excerpt for a second. This is what they said in their statement. And take into account, this is a, a an organisation that is reluctant to be forceful about these things. They said. There is nothing humanitarian about saving people from sea only to leave them in an open-air prison. This policy should be stopped immediately and should not be replicated by any government. That's all right, but Peter Dutton did say that um, they were told when they went there that they weren't to treat the, the people in the in the camps. Did he? Yeah, no, he said that. And then Medicine Sans Frontiers came back and said, actually, no, our, uh, our, the very first page of our agreement of work said that we would treat everyone on Nauru, including... The, the people in the camps. To which he responded, Peter Dutton responded, that, uh, oh, well, you know, he's handed the immigration portfolio over. He was just going off what he was told, and uh, he might have gotten it slightly wrong. God, they're shonky. Anyone who thinks that this, this abuse of children is a price we have to pay for being a you know, comfortable society, and that that's okay. First of all, as we've talked about many times, that's bullshit. This doesn't actually help us in any way. It costs us money. It makes us less safe there are much more secure ways of processing refugees and more efficiently 
but say a measurable part of our privilege uh, could be ascribed to us being prepared to do to these children what we're doing. Uh, can I point people to, like, can you Google the word omelas, O-M-E-L-A-S, uh, find the Ursula K. Le Guin story, you can find it, there's a PDF of the story there, it's a short story, it's not, not it's a few pages, um, just read the people who walk away from omelas and think about it, if you have, I mean, I presume most people listening to this have, are aware of it already. Yeah, I wasn't until this morning, and I read it, and it is absolutely, like, it is beautiful, like all of her stuff, it is amazingly well and beautifully written, but my God, it is chilling and horrible, and it is... Anyway, it makes the point. Um, in fact, first, first dog's cartoon in the Guardian uh, this week uh, has one of the people saying, "Oh well, you know, they deserve it." And we is how we how we I forgot actually what the, what the speech bubble says, but basically one of the supporters with an I heart omelas uh, t-shirt on as a reference. So if you haven't read omelas, uh, just it's won't it'll take you like ten minutes, and it's it's worth it. Well, you know, it's not lighthearted, but you'll get the reference, and you know, I think I think it makes the point reasonably starkly. Anyway. Let's see. Are we ending on anything? Is there any positive note this week? Well, the positive note is pe- people rose up in New South Wales against the, the commercialisation of the Opera House. That's nice. Uh, it looks like the uh, attack on uh, gay students might backfire and we might actually end up with some protections because we're optimists. And there is actually some good news in Victoria. Victoria has ended the forced divorce for married trans people. If uh, married trans people want to affirm their gender on their birth certificate, they no longer need to divorce their same-sex partner. It is a bit of a weird thing that this is a thing that has had to be changed that like oh, wasn't automatically fixed. But yes, that is a hooray, Victoria, for making this common sense change yes. that I'm sure will make Lyle Shelton's head explode. Yes, and but I'm just saying it is some good news. It is some progress. It is something that obviously that shouldn't ever have been a thing. And apparently it is still a thing in New South Wales, Northern Territory, Tasmania and Western Australia. Hooray for Daniel Andrews' socialist utopia. Um, anyway, <laughs> at least we... Look, I mean, we can't be too smug. Um, the, the, we don't have the protections for the gay students and teachers that they no. have in Tasmania. So, you know, there's there's work to be done. Anyway, that is a that is a positive... Well, yes. thank you for finding that. Uh, Denise, thank you for coming back to the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Kristen, for telling us what was stuck in your craw. Uh, thank you, Alex Lum, for the artwork. Thank you, Robin Gray, for the music. Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. I apologise most wholeheartedly for the audio quality last week. I am looking at the Zoom right now. It is definitely recording from the actual microphones, not the little shitty Zoom microphones that are pointing away from me on the table. It is, I apologise. We basically hit the point of there wasn't a way of fixing it other than to do what ended up being done. But I apologise that it was not at the audio quality you expect for the podcast. So thank you to everybody who stuck with us. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers who actually provide the proper equipment when we're using it properly. Hooray! Uh, we have two microphones. It's delightful. It makes a big difference. Uh, thank you everybody who is subscribing on Patreon. It, it makes a huge difference to keeping the podcast running and it wouldn't be running without the Patreon um, support at this point because it, it does have costs in terms of uh, money as well as time. Thank you everybody. We will be back next week. Bye. See you later. See you later.